Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. As in a few previous episodes, we are changing things up a little bit. So I am super delighted to be joined by my guest co-host, Barb McLean. For those of you who have followed our show or followed us on Twitter and social, you would know Barb really, really well. And today we are joined by our guest, Hesse Jones. Hesse is the venture partner at Matter Ventures, chief of staff of Beacon, the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network, as well as Forbes contributor and a whole lot more others. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Steele. Yippee, I am so excited because there's a lot I want to talk to you about. Um, Hestina, I know Barb has questions for you too. Um, not only are both of you fabulous ladies, but also I think you're both from the same country. So we'll get a little bit into that. Um, and Tessie, your journey, let's start with you. you. You have done a lot of different things, many different areas. You are both a strategist, a technologist on AI privacy and ethics, something that both Barb and I care a lot about. You are also a venture partner and a tech journalist. I know I miss a few things here and there. Can you walk us through how that all came about? Yeah, so I'm happy to. Uh, thank you for having me here, uh, Theo and Barb. So nice to finally see you, uh, Theo, outside of Twitter. <laughs> so I started off as a data marketer. Gosh, uh, I guess 1990, I graduated from business school here in uh, Waterloo. And, you know, I, when I, when I went into advertising, it was a different world because data back then was really all about, um, your home address, your name, your first name and last name, and maybe your purchase activity. And that's really all that we had. And so I started out from, from that perspective. But then when 1999 at circa, I, I guess this Y2K hit, and the internet sort of exploded, I realized that we can get data from many, many other places other than just a mailing list. And that's that's what really got me excited because, um, you know, as a marketer, as you know, the more that you know about people, the better that you could predict what they could buy. And so like for me, um, even coming from data advertising, and uh and marketing i i actually became enamored with this thing called social media and this was back i think gosh 2005 and uh without people really really understanding it this is what this the advent of when facebook started when twitter started people were kind of learning how to use the medium so they were spilling their lives online. There was rampant threads of conversation about anything and everything. And then you had this emergence of these tightly knit forums where, where people were kind of letting down their guard and being transparent about everything, like their views and opinions on everything. And this is around the time that I launched uh, Yahoo Answers. I had come from traditional advertising. Um, I did that for um, probably eight to 10 years. Then I went to banking and from banking opened up an internet group here at CIBC to, to try to, to move everything online uh, from an acquisition, customer acquisition perspective. And I quickly left banking to go to uh, Yahoo because I realized that, you know, 
banking wasn't moving at, at, at a pace that I was comfortable with. It was way too slow to actually build the internet in a bank back in the year 2000. So, so when I, when I went to Yahoo, this whole, this whole idea of community was the thing that, that to me was by the catalyst that launched me into the person I was today. And so when we cut, when we talk about these forums of understanding, it was, is it, it this vulnerability and honesty that people were like on the web um, in a lot of these forms got me more hungry about correlating this notion of intent and motivation with purchase activity. And like um, the uh, the social dilemma pointed out, uh, I was part of an ad platform, but we were measured and compensated through performance, through reach, revenue, and engagement. Engagement was the most important metric, as you know, because the longer that we could keep people on the site, the more variables that we could identify that would that would make this more likely. And the more they, they spent time, the impressions they generated, the more ad inventory, it would create more revenue opportunities for us as a company. And I thought back then that if we had this whole picture of a customer from their social profile to their online behaviors through their business transactions, then we would actually stop guessing about who they were. And so in the beginning, it was really innocuous at first. Over time, it became insidious. And I think that's when I, I, I didn't start changing into the person I was today until much later because I actually uh, quit, um, you know, startup, Yahoo, went more into um, my own business. I started developing a business in to, to develop like an intelligence service that would allow companies to understand the marrying of transactions that they already had that they're aggregating versus what they could get in social so they could understand their customers better. And and so one thing I realized was that as, as hungry as companies uh, wanted to have that information, there is also a, in Canada a very huge privacy issue in, in not being able to know enough about, know stuff about people without their consent. And consent is, is strong here. Um, and so in, in some cases, I was able to get data. In most cases, I wasn't just because of regulation. But, you know, one thing struck with, st struck with me during the, during the time I was actually working with companies who were doing things like customer journey analytics or profiling. I mean, that stuff was still exciting to me. But then when I started listening to, to pundits out there, like Brian Solis said, um, you know, he wrote about the future economy and he said, we now live three lives online um, and will continue to do so in the future. One that disappears, one that's secret, and one that will sculpt our legacy. And so after 20 years of the data marketing experience, I actually now consider myself an anti-marketer. I realized that we're crossing this really dangerous line and started to question whether or not business really needs all that data in order to make sound decisions. And so, you know, I responded, absolutely not. The issue is that technology has created what we think we know is a standard for how information is used, how it's collected, and how it's managed. And so that's why in the last, let's say, five, six years, I started not only researching about AI, ethics, etc., 
but started to actually questioning my colleagues in the industry about whether or not we should be doing what we're doing, knowing that there's still a lot of like hurdles in the industry when it comes to, to targeting, which is still faulty. There's a lot of fraud still in the industry. And there, there's a lot of just, um, you know, unfortunate um, targeting that that's hurting people in the downstream. So that's, that's how I came to do what I'm doing. And the, the journalist part of me uh, for Forbes gave me an outlet to, to be able to speak about these things very much from a human as well as a business standpoint. That reminds me of one of my favorite movie quotes, um, you know, thinking about not whether you can do something or it's whether you should be doing something. So hats off to Dr. Malcolm uh, for that one. But, you know, I think that's then taken you through your career journey up to where you are now. So let's talk a little bit about Matter Ventures. And you say on your website here, over the next five years, we will power up 100 underestimated founder-led companies that are creating game-changing innovations and growing our global economies. And so I'm picking up some of what you were sharing on your own journey on wanting to make sure you're moving um, at pace and the power of community is certainly what I'm picking up in that statement. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about where Matter Ventures is at and what is the Power Up Network? Okay, so I one of the reasons, thank you, Barb, um, that I joined Matter, and believe me, I'm a neophyte when it comes to venture capital. And I tell my colleagues this all the time. I said, you guys handle all of the financial jargon like cap table, and all that stuff <laughs> and let me deal with the startup step because I know startups better than I know uh, the financial side. And so one of the reasons, so one thing that we're doing at Matter is we're kind of changing the game on how, on how venture capital, um, uh, on access to venture capital, because as, as we know, I've done uh, tons of studies in the last couple of years in, in terms of really understanding who actually gets funded when it comes to, uh, when it comes to venture capital. And one of the, uh, companies, um, Capor Capital actually did a report that talked about the, the current VC model actually having problems. They called it the VC 1.0 gone wrong because they showed how investment firms have caused actual real world problems by not merely excluding women and minority founders from the ranks, by, but by proactively creating terrible outcomes for the world. I mean, I have to say, okay, so we work, I mean, we talk about Facebook, we talk about Uber, we talk about Lyft, all those come to the latter two that are actually not making money. Um, and the, 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 we work who who actually I guess they pumped up the the value of this company and the the founder was doing so many things wrong and and just basically using the money for his own bank account so we we tend to look like if we talk about AI bias I know I'm I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself but there's bias in many industries in finance in advertising in venture capital and so when what we wanted to do was increase access to men, women and minority founders, LGBTQ, newcomers of the country, 
um, the neurodiverse population because these groups have never had access to funding. The reason being is that the, the groups that, that actually dispense of the, founding, the, the, the funding are normally located in something, some area called Silicon Valley. And it's not only it's Silicon Valley it, and, and their closed networks that actually um, give access to people who just happen to be in that network or happen to be in an accelerator of a founder or someone who knows that individual. And so, so the, the fact is, is that the bias has been in, in this industry for so long that 98% of the founders who could actually be doing some something monumental to change this planet are not even considered. So, so that's what we want to do. We want to be able to, to, to not only give them access, but we, we contend we're not a charity. We're here to find the game changing founders that could do this, uh, this stuff who, who've never actually, uh, been to uh, or have been led through the door of a venture capital company. So the opportunities, we're opening up the opportunities and there's many others like us that, that are doing the same thing. I like your point, that is not a charity. I think that's the one thing that people often forget you know, doing good doesn't mean it's charity. Being inclusive, including ideas and voices of other people, doesn't mean you're you're doing a charity. There is profits to be made. There is a sustainable business model to be have. Just expanding who you include in what you do. Um, so kudos to you guys for that. On the on the topic of AI that you were just talking about, right? And the topic of funding, there is no limits as to the buzz and the excitement that's in the sector thing to the tune of um funding doubled last year according to cb insights and a, a, a few other outlets i'm interested in looking at though is the intersection of ai and banking right what is that technology being used and how do we make sure that it will have a positive outcome and i know you have a few thoughts around that yeah i i don't know if you you guys you ladies sorry uh no so i just actually published uh an article this weekend it was called web three to be or not to be and um the reason i had written that article um, apart from being it being a pure interest was for me to to really understand the next iteration of the web and how it's going to actually solve or fix a lot of the problems that we have now. And one of those is, is actually the, you know, cryptocurrency, can cryptocurrency solve the, the banking industry? Like the fact of the matter is, is that this new idea of decentralization yeah. means that no one entity, whether or not be government or financial or tech will actually own the the platform in which all let's say transactions um um exist and so and so when when i think of it cryptocurrency is way too early right now there, there's just too many too much volatility in it yes the, the the financial world um still still benefits very much from from many things uh, like i've worked in banking by the way um for five years and one of the reasons I left was that not only because it was too slow to evolve, but because there's so many inherent problems with the system when even when it came to to, to bias. Um, so just I want to give a quick example. I, I worked 
in credit card marketing. And so we always have to target people who, from a risk perspective, those who uh, uh, apply for a credit card, but qualify for a credit card, but have the, the lowest risk of default. And one of the things that I realized much later on after I left banking was that we had this thing um, called a kill file. Like I knew we had a kill file, but I really didn't understand the implication for it. And so a kill file are a bunch of names and rules within a list that basically said, take this list and but before you actually launch that uh, the, the campaign, apply the kill list to the, the final file. And this will remove anybody from that list that has the highest risk of default. And one of those risks of default was anybody with a social insurance number starting with 99. And for, for people that didn't know what that was and what I didn't know what that was at the time, it means newcomers to the country, people who hadn't even created um, a credit uh, profile of themselves. So the minute that you enter the country, your risk, your um, ability to get a job, your ability to get a loan, your ability to get any kind of credit is is already um, de-risked by the system. You will not be able to within the Canadian standards because of that rule that's in place. So those are the kinds of things that people don't realize that need fixing. They have become like part of the automated models that are in systems that, that need to change. So I, so I will say that, that that's one of the reasons why I left, but I have to, I, I also realized that above all this, there are things that are already being done um, to try to change or to try to uh, create more transparency within the system, to create more accountability within the system. Not sure if you know companies called, let's say, Responsible AI. Um, they're working to actually uh, define responsible AI uh, with practical tools, through expert guidance, through through data rights, through privacy, through security, and and they're developing it um, in line with many contributions within an open source community, so that they can create a standard and a certification program where startups can use it and ensure that, you know, if they're certified with responsible AI, and then they are able to, let's say, in six months time, we have to recertify themselves to make sure that their technology is sound, that it's private, that it's secure, then let's do that. Uh, Beacon, I work with Beacon, and uh, we're, we actually have a data privacy impact assessment that's automated as well, because as you know, you're, you're a company that, let's say, has an average of 21 layers deep in your tech stack. Did you know that even if you just use WordPress alone, that you have the ability to, you actually um, are creating more downstream risks, risks, not because of WordPress, but because of all the plugins that are related to WordPress. Now, imagine if you had WordPress plus uh, MailChimp plus HubSpot, right? And plus, oh God, Google Suite, G Suite. So now you've increased your risk tenfold because each of these companies has an average of 21 other companies within their tech stack. So but by, by the time you multiply the risks of each of these technologies and what impact that has on the individual, you have lost, absolutely have lost control of your data. So that, which is the reason why we've 
we've uh, created this because we realize that if you create an analogy, analogy to an iceberg, the top of the iceberg is what everybody sees. It's what a company discloses. But most are aware of the risks, let's say 10% uh, above the water. But below the water is the risk that we expose. And, and so that like that, that to me is go going to be important. The other part of it is from an industry perspective, um, there is going to be lots of investment when it comes to AI and privacy. Um, in fact, uh, Crunch Crunchbase actually came out with an article last year that said that um, in the last couple of years, over $3.5 billion um, have been um, initiated in funding rounds for, for um, privacy technologies. And uh, they estimate that there's gonna be over 809 that are gonna be additionally listed in the next year. Gartner alone said that by 2023, 65% of the world's population will have personal data covered under a modern pr privacy regulation. Right now, it's about 10%. So uh, legislation is absolutely catching up to technology. And by 2025, this is the last step, by the way, 50% of large organizations will adopt privacy-enhancing computation for processing data in in untrusted environments and so there's going to be a point where privacy and ethical ai will have to become a standard in many of these companies that that are emerging in the future you're bringing up some really interesting examples there i think of tools that you could probably almost call ubiquitous whether it's g suite or wordpress um, people tend to use these because they're easy to use. They're widely available. Many times they are freely available. And uh, I, I was hoping that next we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what is the trade-off between privacy and convenience and the role that data and trust and how that data is getting used might play. And so obviously data plays a huge role in all of our daily activities, whether we actually know that's happening or not. You raised some really good examples there of where you're probably not even thinking about the implications of that. And for businesses to be able to succeed, they obviously need to access a ton of data. Um, mm -hmm. So when we think about some of the existing services, like the ones you were talking about, or new ones that are in the marketplace, things like uh, cashierless retail, where a customer can just go in and shop and there's all of these sensors and camera monitors looking at their every move. Where do we help draw that line between privacy and convenience? And how do we help protect people and, and consumers and give them more control over what they give out? Do you think that's even possible? I think, you know, I, I, I've had this conversation um, a couple of times and uh, there was, for example, we had this um, lady on from Clarify, which is a facial recognition company. And she was on our last podcast at, at Beacon. And her her topic was the positive, uh, the positive side of facial recognition. And she attempted to to actually tell us that, you know, Facial recognition is here. We got to live with it. So if we're going to live with it, how can we do it in a positive way? And we know that facial recognition is, I mean, the use cases for it are, are horrid. I think the most recent that I did tell her about was um, 
how Clearview, and we know Clearview AI is, is, is awful, but they, they actually provided the Ukraine government with its technology that allowed them to identify the, you know, the, the deceased Russian soldiers so that they can, they could, um, give them back, give the, give the names and, uh, the bodies to the, to the Russian families. The unfortunate thing about that is that you know, you're already the, the minute you allow a government to use that kind of technology that has that's been unconsented. It's an unconsented database. The accuracy rate of of being able to say whether or not this person is who we think they are because of scraped data. It's you're already creating a bad precedence for how that data is being used. Um, accuracy. The reason I point out accuracy is even from a biometric perspective. Um, positive identification of faces also means that, you know, it's, it's their eyes because eyes are a very unique feature, uh, of a, of a person. And so what do we need to do? We, do we need to have some of those dead soldiers with their eyes open beforehand to be able to accurately identify them afterwards? Like that stuff is ridiculous. So, um, so we, when we talk about convenience, and we talk about privacy. What, what this woman had said to me was that imagine going to a store and you're putting your thumbprint, um, on this little, you know, gadget that says, I consent to you using my information so that when I go to the store, you'll know which racks I've been to, what I buy. You know, if I go to the clo uh, kids section, if I go to the, uh, the, the men's section or what do I like in shoes, those kinds of things. So that the next time I come in there, it'll be so much easier, so much more convenient for, uh, for us as a store to identify the things that we think that you actually will buy without you having to walk there. And I said, and what if one of the places that I just did decide to walk to was to buy a place, piece of clothing for my boyfriend and not my husband? I said, at what point in time does that stuff, you know, can it be, can it be not necessarily, it could be harrowing for you down the road, but not in that moment. The relevancy and the convenience is, is, is what will not stop. It's always going to be here. But I think companies have to think two or three steps ahead to say, what if we were hacked? What if, you know, so what if we, somebody inadvertently in our companies sold that data? There was a bad guy. Like what would happen to that information? Companies don't think of those things. They only think about how they're going to make money. And I think when we talk about this, we have to, we have to realize that the default is a company should do the right thing always. And so consent. We know we know you're going to use our we know we're going to use your data so do not put the burden on the customer to consent just do the right thing from the beginning tell them we're going to use your data for these purposes if you disagree then then here you know um tell us what you disagree with and then take out that option from your database to say i will not use it within these contexts but i will use it here but the the end customer doesn't need to know that they just need to know that you're going to use it responsibly. And if you don't, then
then then the data will be deleted. Period. Um, especially when we we talk about IoT data where it's streaming and it's coming in from everywhere, there is no absolutely no way me as a customer will be able to say yes to this, no to that. And can you imagine um, being having consent from all, every single one of your IoT devices, you know, from your Fitbit to your Nest to your Ring? My God, it's endless. There's absolutely no way people can do that. So you create you create a system that allows companies to do this right, but also scrutinize them with respect to third party audits, uh, DPIAs, um, algorithmic impact assessments, and by that point. As as we've seen from from um, Gartner, uh, regulations will have caught up by then. I had to laugh when you were saying when you were talking about the IoT data and having to consent to everything. That's how it feels like every time you go to Europe, every website you go to, whatever it is that you're looking at, you keep clicking yes, yes, yes because. At the end of the day, I'll be the first to admit I don't have time to go through all of the very small T's and C's that they list out and what might or might not happen. I have to just trust that they will actually do the right thing. But then my question always comes back to, would they? Would we even know what they use the data for? Do they even know what they use the data for, right? I, I think that was the scary part. Knowing what a buy is one thing, Having a third party, a, a private company, having my biometric data, things that I cannot change if it gets hacked, things I cannot take back once it's out there. I think that was the scary part, right? Passwords I can change. That's easy. Phone number I can change. Even social screen numbers and that's, but you can change it. But, but my thumbprint, my eye print and all of those, that those are, those are me. It is uniquely me. I can't change any of those. And, and that's the one part that really scares me. Or even companies like, um, the ones that do your DNA test. I was so tempted to do it. But then every time when I think about it, I'm like, what if someone, you know, uses that data down the road of things that I don't want them to? Would it be too late to give that out? No, no, no. What do you think, Barb? I'm scared. There's probably a very good reason I haven't gone through with a with a DNA test because I'm, you know, fascinated by my own family's history and where we came from and and all of that. But it's exactly those concerns that stop me from doing it. And you know, to me, then that's all of the downstream impacts of the decision I make. My DNA is not my own. I have biological children. I've shared half of my DNA with them. Am I making a decision today that then has a clear downstream impact to them someday? Um, you know, we we are not making it easy for people to understand what they're agreeing to because we've trained ourselves just to click and ignore, as you say. Um, I might have to use that for the, uh, <laughs> the title of the podcast, Click and Ignore. That, that, that's exactly that, right? Um, before we close out, Hesse, I want to ask you something. And something I'm really, really curious about too. Looking at what you've done today, where you are today, right? When you first started your journey, from when we first started talking um, earlier and all the transitions you've done, is there something you wish you knew? or something you would have told your younger self? 
You know, um, Theo, I, I've always kind of regretted starting late in life. When I, when I say late, I'm not. I'm a late entrepreneur. I started when I was forty, um, and then I think the reason I did also because as a marketer, I realized like at the turn of the, I guess it was the turn of the century because it was the year two thousand. I realized that what I had learned. Uh, would absolutely make me obsolete if I didn't change. Like uh, there are friends of mine that are were in traditional TV and radio, and uh, they stuck with it, knowing that there was money to be made. But some of those people that were in print, my God, some of those are dog walkers in it right now. They <laughs> there's absolutely no jobs in the print industry, and so I knew that I had to switch. And I knew I had to learn digital and I knew how I had to kind of evolve with the times in order to actually survive. Um, but, you know, there's there's also this this idea that, you know, as you evolve, you have to learn. And and we're always constantly learning. And I, that's why I love social media, because I, I learn from from everybody every single day, something that new, that new that's coming on. And um, and. I would say, and this is weird because like, I think most people say this that are old or older, uh, they, they have this enormous wisdom when they say to their younger self, you know, follow your passion. But, you know, honestly, you have to, because these days, uh, to me, uh, you know, uh, you know, compared to when I graduated school, there weren't today. There's so many more problems that we need to solve. I mean, we have urgent climate problems, right? We never had that back then, and so I did. I had this vision that maybe I could, I could just, you know, go to school, get a job, have kids, find someone really cool, and be conditioned to just, you know, um, live to work. No, no, work to live, work to live, and just do that, and then eventually just die. <laughs> now it's like. No, the reason I became a workaholic was because I saw that there are so many things that we could do. And so when people say, like Zuckerberg talks about, you know, move fast, fast and break things. And for anybody that, that's worked for a technology company and you realize that you can do that, that that weighs enormously in, in how you decide what you want to do in your future. Because if you can have a direct impact and not only what a company does, but how that how that actually impacts your clients or your customers or or the world, then you're going to you're going to switch. You're going to do things differently. So um, I would say that that's what I would tell myself. I would say, look for some of the biggest problems in the world and what you're really good at and use what you're good at to see how you can contribute to that change. love that sentiment that that's amazing and before we close the uh web3 article that you were just talking about i was gonna say um please do follow hesse on social you can find her at hesse jones all in one word and her web3 article from forbes is actually right there where else can you find your work hesse oh gosh okay so i'm on at matterventures.com m-a-t-r ventures.com and you could also find me on linkedin i think you could just search hesse jones 
on LinkedIn. Yes, definitely. And before I close, one more shout out to my wonderful co-host, Bart McLean. And definitely do sign up for her FinTech playlist. It has been my essential companion every Saturday with my morning coffee. Um, if you do find me missing on social on Saturday morning, it's because I just dived right into Barb's FinTech playlist, along with a lot of the wonderful music and articles that she feature. So thank you, Barb. We love you for that. Thank you, Theo. Check it out this Saturday to see what I can come up with to pair with to be or not to be. So thank you. Ah, nice. Yes, definitely do do that. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.